You're listening to Crosspoint Community Church in LaGrange, Texas podcast. To learn more about Crosspoint Community Church, including service times and how you can connect, please visit crosspointchurchtx.org. I'm so excited to be with you guys this morning, and I'm also really excited that we have some little faces with us here today. I just want to put any mom's um, mind at ease that don't try to silence your kids. It's okay. This is family church, and we're here for it. So um, kids, I want to speak to you guys that you guys can listen and you guys can learn, and I think that God can even teach you guys something this morning. Okay, and so maybe when you're sitting there and there's even some big words that you don't understand, I want to challenge you guys to even maybe take some time to you guys can draw some pictures or think about some things that maybe you don't understand that you can ask your parents later. Okay, so we are going to be talking about something that's one of my all time favorite things. Some of my favorite memories in life surround weddings. My favorite movie clips, my favorite moments, my favorite memories surround weddings. I remember as a little kid looking through my parents' wedding album, and my parents got married in the early 80s, so my mom had these poofy sleeves, and my dad had this butt-cut haircut. And even still, some of you got dads are going, yep, 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 uh uh-huh, yep, I had one of those, um... Even in the midst of the tackiness, I remember thinking those pictures were pure magic. I remember watching Father of the Bride with my dad when I was a little girl. I remember seeing him get choked up, and still, that is one of my all-time favorite movies. I remember at my own wedding reception, just looking around the room and thinking, will there ever be a time in my life When this many people I love so much will all be together in the same room. I remember one time my husband and I went to a black tie wedding in the summer in July in central Texas outside in full sun at 6 p.m. And I actually looked it up on the weather um, dot com resource and it actually said that it was 95 degrees as we we're sitting out there in the blazing sun and I remember standing up after that wedding just being absolutely drenched you can imagine at a black tie wedding you are not looking your most photogenic after that much sweat but that even tells you how much we wanted to be there because some level of insanity is is at play if you're willing to make that kind of humiliating sacrifice. Today we are going to look at what is often referred to as Christ's first miracle. And it takes place at a wedding. Let me pray for us and then we're going to dive right in today. Father God, I just pray for all all of us this morning, God. Would we... Would you open up the wonder of your word to us this morning? God, we declare that we are here because of you. God, we are here to celebrate you. We are here to remember you. We are here to know you better. God, would our fellowship be an overflow of just coming close and being with you, God? 
use this message to edify this church, God, to edify and encourage your people. Use me this morning, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are going to be looking at John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 this morning. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to go there. I'm a Bible highlighter, and I think it's really helpful in this day and age to still have a visual in front of us. The verses will also be on the screen. But again, kids, this is a great time that maybe you can look at some of those words. If you're starting to read, you can look at some of those words and try to remember what some of those words are to ask about later. Now, while we're going there, I want to give you a little aside about me. I lead a ministry called Woven, and our mission statement is to equip women to study the Bible and to cultivate meaningful relationships. I am a seminary student, and one of the things that I'm doing right now is actively studying how to best engage the Bible. How do we study the scripture well? And one thing that I have been learning and humbled by is that we often approach the scripture and we immediately ask, What does this have for me? What's here for me? And I don't think that that is a bad question, but I don't think it's the first question we should ask. What I'm learning is that that is actually kind of a self-centered approach to coming to the Bible. Because the Bible is not first for me, but it is first about God. So hear me out. We are the intended recipients. God has written the word that we may know him, but it is first a book about him. So when we approach the scripture, the first question that I think is a better question for us to ask is, what does this teach me about God? What does this teach me about God? And in this particular passage, we're going to be looking at what does this teach me about the person of Jesus Christ? So let's read John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 together, and this is in the ESV. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So I want to give us a little bit of context to understand this passage better. This account is written by the Apostle John, who, as Kenny mentioned last week, is the disciple who referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And what's interesting is that John 
is one of the four gospel accounts, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all written about a generation earlier. So at the time that John is writing this, many of the stories of Jesus have already been written down and have been told. So John is less concerned with all of the details that some of the first three writers wrote down, and he is more concerned with the theology. That's not to say that he was inaccurate. It's just to say that his main focus was theology. So think theology over biography when we look at the book of John. Something else worth mentioning is that a Jewish wedding was where it was at. A Jewish wedding was not an invitation you wanted to turn down. It was a several day to a week long celebration of food, of feasting, of wine, of people coming from far and wide. Most likely the community where it was hosted would have invited everyone to come be a part of it. It was something to be a part of. Now, we need to understand, too, that in, in this culture, that to run out of wine would have been far worse than just a minor embarrassment. It would have broken some unwritten social codes. It would have deeply affected this family's honor and reputation. I don't know that there is an equivalent today, but imagine if you were hosting a wedding for your children and you invited 300 people and 300 people came, but you had only set out seats for 200 and you had only table seatings for 200 and 100 of those people had to leave. That would probably be devastating, but I don't even know that that would compared to what we're talking about in this context. Now, we don't really know, but maybe the wedding was a low-budget feast. I think one thing that we can see here is that a lot of the people that Jesus did life with were not the wealthiest. They were not the people who had the abundance of resources. Another thing to mention is that Jesus was most likely not invited because of anything that the people thought he could provide. He was living in relative obscurity up to this point. This is the very beginning of his of his ministry. So nobody has seen him do any miracles. And people really don't know much about him. So the first thing, remember our central question of what does this passage teach me about Christ is this. Marriage always symbolizes more. Marriage always symbolizes more. When we look at the scriptures, we have to recognize that the Bible is actually all one story. If you heard Natalie West a couple of weeks ago, she shared a little bit about this, that the meta narrative, which is just a fancy word for the one story of the Bible, is from Genesis to Revelation. And the Bible begins with a wedding in Genesis, and it ends with a wedding in Revelation. In Genesis... We see the marriage of Adam and Eve. And in Revelation, we see the marriage of Christ and the church. Marriage originated in the mind of God. It always points to something outside of itself, not just in the Bible. Marriage is a theme that runs throughout the Bible, and I believe it's part of why something stirs so deep inside us when we go to a wedding. 
It's why if you're married and you're at odds with your spouse, there's something off in your core. Because in your DNA, when you're married, it affects you. And it's supposed to be like that. It's why when you're in sync in your marriage, I believe that you feel like you can really conquer any obstacle. Marriage and the mysterious oneness between a husband and a wife always points to the promise of Christ wooing us and pledging himself to us and dwelling with us forever. Marriage always symbolizes more. Tim Keller writes in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, it's a great book, that the scripture tells us that the best marriages are pointers to the deep, infinitely fulfilling and final union we will have with Christ in love. Marriage always symbolizes more. The next thing I want us to notice in this passage is that Jesus was content to do the Father's work. Jesus was content to do the Father's work. If you'll remember in this interaction with his mother here, you saw this brief clip and they added in some parts just with some um, artistic interpretation. So there's some words that we don't see in the scripture. But I love how that clip, and, and even in the scripture too, we see the humanity of Jesus. And we see that this was a real relationship between a, a mother and a son. So Mary comes to Jesus and she presents him with this problem. They have no wine. It's the first day. It tells us two things, that she was both concerned for the welfare of this family and that she believed that Jesus could do something about it. Her approaching Jesus is like the most practical form of lament. If you've ever heard of lament, it's basically a prayer of bringing a complaint, a grievance, a hurt to God, being raw and honest with him, and then fully entrusting it to him. That's what she did here. In in verse 4, we see her response. I'm sorry, Christ's response. Woman, what does this have to do with me? And initially, it seems a bit rude. Why would he call her woman? If my son came to me and said, woman, make me lunch, that would not be the first thing he would be getting. So you can imagine my son looking at me, shaking his head like, yep, I know. Yeah. He said, PB&J. Okay, we'll get to that later. Um, but what's neat is that Jesus actually used that same word in John 19:26 when he's hanging on the cross and he's looking at John and his mother And he says to his mother, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And he's transferring his care to John to care for his mother after he dies. So we know that that term was not offensive, but it was affectionate. They had a sweet and an intimate relationship. But what Jesus is really saying is, why are you getting me involved? He was very much aware that his first allegiance was to God, his heavenly father and not his earthly mother. Jesus was content to do the father's work. And in this place, at the start of his ministry, he was less a son to his earthly mother and more a son to his heavenly father. My husband told me a story recently 
of his parents. Their names are Tom and Gaynell. And when they were engaged many years ago, there's a story that they were, uh, they had gone on a date and Tom was bringing Gaynell back and they were um, sitting outside talking and it was around curfew. Her curfew was about 11 and she was still living with her her dad at this time and, and her dad began to, he's inside, but he began to flip on and off the switches and he began to kind of make noise and kind of make it clear that it's curfew, it's time for you to come inside. And Tom went in to talk to Gaynell's father, his future father-in-law, and he said to her, with every day that passes, this woman is less your daughter and more my wife. And there was a transition that was taking place. And I believe that this is a similar transition that's taking place in this passage. It's as if Jesus is being addressed by his earthly mother, and when she comes to him, she's addressing him as a mom to a son. But I believe there's a transition that takes place, and when she leaves that interaction, she has submitted to him as her Lord. And she recognizes he is first and foremost a son of his heavenly father. And there's also a sense that Jesus, not aiming to please his mother, but still very much connected to his mother, is moved by her heart. He's moved by her compassion for this family. He's moved by her belief. Isn't that what prayer is? God's heart is moved when we come to him. The next thing I want us to see is that Jesus was doing a new thing. Jesus was doing a new thing. Remember we talked about that word, the meta-narrative, how the Bible is all one story. Jesus was instituting a new covenant here. And all throughout the Bible, we see these beautiful reversals that point to Christ as the ultimate source of our redemption. Let me show you what I mean. If you've ever heard the story, kids, I need your help on this one. How many of you guys have ever heard the song? Pharaoh, Pharaoh. How many of you guys can sing it? Can anybody sing it? Oh, you guys are acting all shy. Come on, don't make me sing. Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Oh, baby, let my people go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nobody? Only the adults are doing it? So, okay, you guys know what I'm talking about. So there is a story in the Bible that shows up in Exodus. And Moses is sent by God to free the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. And Pharaoh is not budging. He is not willing to release the Israelites. And what God does is he sends a series of plagues as judgment on the people of Egypt. And the first plague that we see in Exodus 7 is that Moses turns the water of the entire Nile River into blood. And here, just a little over a thousand years later, we see Christ, through his abundant grace and his abundant provision, turn water into wine. This beautiful reversal. Jesus was doing a new thing. So these pots that held 20 to 30 gallons were stone pots. Clay pots were used for food or for um, drinks. 
those could be defiled. But these stone pots were considered um, for purification, for ceremony, for ritual ongoing cleansing in the temple. That would have been their primary purpose. So this water that was filling these would have reminded the people of the law, of their need for ongoing cleansing, of going back to the temple and being washed again and going back again because they messed up again. But when Jesus turns this water into wine, it's this powerful metaphor that the people didn't really even understand yet. He took the water, which represented the law, and he fulfilled the law, and then he offered a new way. That in him, people could be cleansed once and for all. He was doing a way for that need for ritual ongoing cleansing. What else does wine represent in the Bible? Wine symbolized joy and blessing to the people of Israel. It reminded the people of fullness and abundance. So when Mary approached Jesus and said, they have no wine, this is, in a sense, a metaphor for where the people of Israel are at when Jesus comes on the scene. The wine is gone. There is no fullness. People are weary from the law. They are tired of having to come back to the temple and be cleansed over and over again. And yet Jesus here provides fullness where there was emptiness and defeat. Another thing that we see the wine represent is in the Last Supper, just a, a little bit later, in, a couple years later in Jesus' life. Look with me at Luke 22, 20. It'll be up on the screen. Jesus says, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Here, the wine represents the blood of Christ shed on the cross. So where the ceremonial water typically in these stone pots was used for external washing, the wine foreshadowed the internal cleansing that only Jesus could bring. Jesus was doing a new thing. One other really cool detail, if you look at John 2, 1, the very beginning of the story, notice what it says. Kids, if you're looking, what does it say in John 2, 1? It says, on the what day? On the third day, right? What other amazing miracle that we just celebrated in April? What happened? What did Jesus do? Kids, I need your help. On the third day, what did Jesus do? He died on a Friday and he... Yes, that's right. Amen. He rose from the dead. I would imagine that at the end of Jesus' life, when he rose on the third day, that these little details would have come back to people, to his disciples. Oh, on the third day, Jesus turned the water into wine? On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead and conquered death. So we've seen how marriage is a big deal to God, how it always symbolizes more. We looked at how Jesus was content to do the Father's work, and we've seen how Christ was doing a new thing and starting a new covenant. And next, I want us to see that Jesus shows himself to be the ultimate groom. I don't know if there's a greater example of Christ so beautifully revealing his glory 
and also living out total humility than this passage. We see both greatness and meekness all wrapped into one. Jonathan Edwards was a famous pastor who said that even as Christ is infinitely greater than us, he is also infinitely more humble. We're going to look back at verses 9 through 11 again and read these because there's some cool details that I missed the first 20 times I read this. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So remember we said earlier that providing the wine was the responsibility of who? The groom, right? The, the responsibility of the groom and his family was to provide that wine. And here, what we see taking place is that the host of the banquet does not acknowledge Christ, and Christ doesn't even make it known to the host of the banquet. He acknowledges who? The groom. And in this humble and utterly selfless behind-the-scenes moment, Jesus says so much without saying anything at all, because there was an inner circle of Mary, the disciples, and the servants who knew exactly what was going on. His actions communicated that he was the ultimate groom. Notice, this was a quiet event. Jesus didn't really get full credit for it here, but his disciples believed in him, and they began to see who he was. There's a song by a band called Mumford & Sons, and it's called Rose of Sharon. And if you've ever heard this song, it's kind of an upbeat song. And the first time I heard it, it kind of surprised me because I wasn't expecting the words to be so um, profound and just kind of took my breath away. But I remember the first time I heard this song, I, my husband and I were at odds with each other. And we were weary in our marriage. And I heard the words of this chorus I want to read to you right now. And they say this, and I will surround you with a love too deep for words. Hold you from the world and its curse. So long as I have breath in my lungs, long as there's a song to be sung. I will be yours and you will be mine. Ever our lives entwined. When it's said and done, I am yours forever. When I heard those words, those words are covenant words. It's not a Christian song, but those words spoke to me of the covenant I have with my husband, but also of the covenant that Christ has made with me and with his church. Guys, it is no coincidence that Christ's first miracle, his first sign, took place at a wedding. This sign is a great foreshadowing of what we have to look forward to for all of our days. Just this past fall, my husband and I had the privilege of going to a dear friend's wedding. And this was a wedding of a friend who 
had watched as so many friends had gotten married, all the while wanting to be married, and then watched as her friends had begun families and kind of moved on, in a sense, to another stage of life. And so when this friend got married, people came in and flew in from all over the place. It was a true celebration. There was dancing, and there was feasting, and there was crying, and there was laughing. It was one of those wedding celebrations that you did not want to be over, because it was a little taste of heaven. I want to end with this verse from Revelation 19. John wrote these words, the same John who wrote this story of Christ and the miracle at Cana in Galilee. It is John himself who writes what's in store for us, for those who are in Christ in the final days. Revelation 19.7, it says, Let us rejoice and exult in him and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. In just a minute, I'm going to pray for us. And the worship team is going to come and sing a song. Um, And we want to take the Lord's Supper. We have a table set up for the Lord's Supper today. And parents with kids, we trust that you guys can kind of navigate where your kids are at. And if they're at a place where they know what that means. But my prayer is that when we take the Lord's Supper, that we would not only remember what the bread and the wine represent past tense of Christ's body being broken and his blood being shed for us, but that we would remember what the wine and the bread also mean for us future tense. Because if you are in Christ, then you are invited to the greatest Wedding, reception, celebration of all time. It will not end. And you will get to drink deeply of Christ. And you will get to celebrate with his people for all eternity. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you so much for the wonder of your word, God, that your word is true and it's rich and God, that you show us yourself through your word. God, I pray now as we transition into a time of just remembering, but also looking forward. God, would you lead us in that? Would your Holy Spirit be felt in this room. Father, would we sense your nearness to us, God? God, we remember what you have done and we also look forward with great anticipation, God, for all that you have in store because everything good on earth is just a shadow of what you have promised for us, God. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us for the Cross Point Community Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this message was encouraging to you as you follow Jesus. 
For more about Crosspoint Community Church, you can find us online at crosspointchurchtx.org. Have a great week.